Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. So sometimes things can get a bit heated in your group chat, but can you really be sued for insulting someone on social media? Can there be consequences of airing your unflattering opinion of a politician? And how can you prove that you're right? Our defamation law expert, Christian Corns, is here to explain why it isn't just media companies who should fear the threat of a defamation suit. Christian Corns is a partner at KNL Gates in Melbourne, and I'm so happy to have him join me now. Christian, welcome. Thanks very much, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, can I just ask Christian, what is defamation? Well, defamation is a civil wrong, or what lawyers like to call a tort. And really, the law of defamation is all about protecting and restoring people's reputations. So to defame someone is to publish something, and it can be written or spoken, which would cause ordinary members of the public to think less of that person, or in the old language, to shun and avoid them. And and whether something is defamatory is an objective test. So it doesn't really matter what the aggrieved person thinks the words meant. The test is whether the ordinary, reasonable person would consider the words to have a defamatory meaning. So that is what defamation is. Firstly, I do have to say I love that the old law reference was to shun, that it would cause someone to be shunned. That's very descriptive. (laughs) There's plenty of the old references. It's very poetic. You mentioned that defamation is a civil wrong. Is it illegal? Look, because it's a, a civil wrong, I don't think it can really be described as being illegal. However, most states in Australia, including New South Wales and Victoria, do have a law against what is known as criminal defamation. Now, believe it or not, that law does carry potential jail sentences. Oh, wow. So in Victoria, the offence is in the Wrongs Act, and in New South Wales, it's found in the Crimes Act. Now, of course, there's very big differences between civil and criminal defamation. With criminal defamation, the prosecuting authority has to establish that the publisher really had no regard whatsoever for the truth of the publication and that their motivation for publishing was truly malicious. In other words, it it has to be a deliberate intention to destroy someone's reputation. So prosecutions for criminal defamation are extremely rare. The last case uh, that I'm aware of was about, well, over 10 years ago now in South Australia, where a young man made a series of really quite obscene publications on Facebook about a serving police officer, and he was Uh, charged and prosecuted and he was found guilty. He was given a good behaviour bond and a a fine. So it it, it is (laughs) technically there are criminal laws in relation to defamation. They're they're very controversial because unfortunately in some parts of the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, governments and people associated with governments use criminal defamation laws as a tool to shut down Mm. anyone speaking out about government corruption in particular But in the UK, they've actually abolished their criminal defamation laws, but they're still on our books, believe it or not. Wow. I can also imagine that social media has become a bit of a 
lawyer's picnic, given what people often don't really seem to hold back with comments that they make on things like Facebook or Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. Look, social media is, uh, it does generate a lot of claims in defamation law. I think what people tend to forget is, you know, in the comfort of their armchair, uh, typing away, uh, often, you know, they just don't think about the consequences. But the reality is that the laws of defamation apply equally to things that are published online as much as things that are published in newspapers. So I won't take you through every insult that I've ever wanted to hurl at someone and ask if it's defamatory, but just as sort of a general guideline, if I call someone an idiot, is that defaming them? Look, like most of the law, the, I think the answer to that question is it depends. <laughs> um, to, <laughs> well, that's to, my next question. What if it's true? <laughs> sure. Well, Look, to call someone an idiot is really to suggest that they're a person of low intelligence. So I think, yes, on its face, that is a defamatory statement because it could well cause other people to, to think less of that person. But the, the law of defamation actually underwent some very significant changes late last year. And one of the biggest changes is that it's now an element of the cause of action for defamation that the aggrieved person has suffered or will likely suffer serious harm to their reputation. Okay. Prior to that change, a plaintiff didn't need to prove that they suffered serious harm as a result of the publication in order to sue. So you had a lot of rather, you know, petty claims in relation to fairly insignificant statements. But the the intention of the new serious harm requirement is designed to sort of weed out frivolous claims. And the change is very new, so we don't have any real test cases yet in Australia, but it is based on British law. And the British courts have set out some criteria when determining whether something is serious harm. So, for example, the scale of the publication, uh, the fact that there's evidence that other people have read the publication, the gravity of the statements themselves. And so we are developing some, some case law in that regard. But getting back to your example, I think, you know, if you're arguing with someone at the pub about the footy and in a loud voice, you, you call them an idiot in front of a group of people... <laughs> that's unlikely to cause the person serious reputational harm. So you probably wouldn't get past first base. But the Sydney Morning Herald publishes an article on its front page accusing a prominent scientist of being an idiot, then you know that may well pass the test. So it remains to be seen how the courts in Australia interpret the, the new law. Can interpret it. But obviously when thinking about serious harm, you could be looking at things like professional consequences. So when you use an example of someone who's perhaps professional, credibility and reputation could be affected by someone making a comment that diminishes their intelligence or their standing. Is that sort of where we could be playing in the space of serious harm being caused? Yeah, absolutely. I I think anything that's going to have real consequences for a person's professional uh, reputation is absolutely going to be a very key criteria when considering what is serious harm. But, you know, when when it boils down to it, I think the two key factors seem to be the extent of the publication, so how widely is it being broadcast, and the gravity of the imputations. In other words, how serious are the allegations that have been made? I want to ask shortly about what happens when defamation cases do go to court. But just, I suppose, more to think of some other examples and means in which people can be defamed. What about group chats? Because there can be a lot of people in a group chat. Mm. Well, look, group chats, uh, again, really, you go back to the, the key 
the basic principles. Is there a defamatory publication to more than one person other than the aggrieved person? And so in a group chat scenario, again, the law will, will be applied and there's really no reason why a defamatory comment in, in a group chat is not actionable. It will be interesting, though, to see how the serious harm test is applied because, again, in a group chat, you've got you know, a fairly limited number of people. So the extent of the publication is not significant. But if the gravity of the allegations are really quite extreme, bearing in mind that the courts have accepted time and time again something called the grapevine principle, which is basically that the courts mm-hmm. will accept that even if there's no direct evidence of rumours uh, spreading, the courts have accepted that you know people do speak on the grapevine. And, and so the courts will make allowance for the fact that what might otherwise be a limited publication can indeed and will, as a matter of human nature, uh, spread to a larger number of people. Can a company sue for defamation? Well, look, since 2005, only very few companies in Australia can sue for defamation in the name of the company. Basically now, unless you're a company that employs less than 10 people or unless you operate not-for-profit, there is no ability to sue for defamation in Australia. And that's essentially because before 2005, a lot of companies were using the defamation laws to shut down public criticism about them. So if someone spoke out about a company, the company could simply sue them for defamation and and scare them and shut them up. Mm. But to their credit, the governments realised that that was uh, not appropriate. And so now it's really only very small businesses that can sue for defamation. And of course, the serious harm threshold that I mentioned earlier applies equally. And in the case of companies, it requires proof that the company has or will likely suffer serious financial loss. So it, it is very, very difficult for companies to sue for defamation. So as an example, could someone sue a disgruntled customer over a Google review or something like that? Like if it's a restaurant or something like that? Look, that's a really great question. There are a lot of uh, cases involving restaurant reviews and and Google reviews. Um, The most famous one I can think of is um, the restaurant reviewer, Mr. Schofield, who uh, had published a, a comment uh, quite a scathing review about um, a lobster that he that he ate. Oh, what and, was wrong with um, the lobster? Well, I think he described it as having every inch of um, juice and squeezed the life out of it, or something in that Ugh. regard. And sounds um, very unappetising. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he he ran a defence of um, fair comment or honest opinion, and he was unsuccessful. And uh, from memory, there was a six figure damages awards. So, oh, wow. um, the, the trick with, with honest opinion or, or fair comment, as it's otherwise known, is to ensure that what you're publishing is genuinely expressed as an opinion rather than a statement of fact, that it relates to a matter of public interest and that it's based on uh, what we call proper material. In other words, generally speaking, that it's based on, on facts. Mm. So, you know, if you publish something that Australia's chief medical officer, professor, blogs is a total idiot, then, you know, that's a purported statement of fact. It's not really based on anything and you wouldn't have an honest opinion defence. But if you were to publish something such as, um, you know, in my opinion, Australia's chief medical officer, Professor Smith, is a person of low intelligence because his public health guidelines recommend that people drink bleach to cure COVID, 
that is more likely to attract the honest opinion defence because it's an expression of opinion. Mm. It's about a matter of public interest and it's based on facts and the facts being the actual guidelines that have been published. Yeah, it's, so, it's qualified yeah. in that in that respect. It's yeah, not just exactly. you saying it for the sake of it. That's right. So to consider the lobster, so to speak, um, yeah. what did the restaurant specifically sue over and how did they prove it? Like they can't go and recreate the meal. Did, like did all the jury get, get a plate of the lobster to say, see, it's delicious? <laughs> I wouldn't mind being on that jury. No, <laughs> look, the jury found that the review, which described the poor old lobster as being cooked until every drop of its juice and joy in the thing had been successfully eliminated, conveyed uh, multiple defamatory meanings, including that the restaurateur was cruel and inhumane in the methods deployed to cook the crustaceans. And the the jury rejected the defence of fair comment. So I think it just goes to show that um, you, you, you do have to be a little bit careful when expressing your opinions, particularly when there is a uh, possibility of causing, you know, economic loss to the defendant. Feels like it doesn't encourage poetic writing. Feels like we just say, <laughs> oh, it was rubbish. <laughs> That's a very good point. So you've done a great job at explaining sort of where defamation sits separate to someone expressing their opinion. Where does free speech sit in this picture? Well, look, that's a really good question because there there is a misconception in Australia, that we all have a mythical right to free speech. And that is not really the case. There, There is no one law that says that we have a right to free speech. We all watch too many American TV we shows. Do, we do. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have the same US-style freedom of speech. But, you know, in our society, of course, we are generally free to express our opinions, but that is subject to the laws of defamation and other laws, including racial and religious vilification laws. The closest we come to a right to free speech arises from a 1997 High Court case in which the ABC was defending a defamation claim by the former New Zealand Prime Minister, David Lang. Okay. And in in that case, the High Court found that under Australia's constitution, there is an implied right to freedom of political communication about government and political matters, and that that implied right could be used as a defence to defamation claims provided that the publisher is not motivated by malice. So that is about as close as we come to, you know, a right to free speech. It has to be uh, about political or government matters to fit within that freedom of political communication. So does that mean it's sort of quite fair game for someone to criticise a politician online? Look, I think it's much, much easier to get away with criticising a politician than it is with a non-politician. And and that's, of course, because in our society, you know, we we take our right to elect officials very seriously and the courts do encourage, you know, a robust debate about politics. Uh, So, yes, I think celebrities are close to fair game in terms of what can be published, but there is a line, of course, and if you start straying into personal allegations or allegations of serious corruption, et cetera, then it is more difficult to rely on that freedom of political communication defence. And where would a celebrity, so obviously if there's an implied right to freedom of political communication, but what about like reality TV celebrities or musicians or sports stars or anything like that? Are they 
are they fairer game? No, look, I don't think so. I mean, the, the laws of defamation apply to celebrities as much as they do to anybody else. So I, I guess on one view, you know, celebrities' reputation is a more valuable asset than the average person because they, they commercialise and trade on their reputations. And, of course, we've seen the media published, uh, punished rather for taking that approach in recent high-profile cases involving Rebel Wilson and, and Jeffrey Rush, both of whom received very large defamation awards against the media. Mm. Um, and I think courts might expect celebrities to have a maybe a thicker skin in, in some respects, but I do think it's a dangerous approach to expect that you can, you know, really... Um, have a crack at, at celebrities and, and and get away with it. It was interesting just because you were mentioning some of the more high-profile cases that have been in the media over the past couple of years about defamation. Which court hears defamation cases? Well, look, in Victoria and New South Wales, all of the superior courts, that is the Supreme Court, the County Court, can hear defamation cases. Interestingly, there's been a, a, a bit of a um, shift in in plaintiffs issuing in the federal court. I think the reason for that is that unlike the state courts, the federal court uh, do not have jury trials for defamation matters. So um, plaintiffs who might otherwise worry about defendants uh, swaying a jury in an emotional way are more confident, I suppose, before a, a judge who's going to take a more black letter approach. So that's just my my view, but. Uh, most courts in Australia do have jurisdiction for defamation matters. That's interesting. So do jury trials in defamation trials, is it pretty much the exact same process as being a jury in a criminal trial? Like, can you get summoned in the same way? Is it the same sort of process? That's right. I th- I th- the biggest difference is that um, uh, in a criminal case, the, the relevant test for proving things is beyond all reasonable doubt. Whereas in a civil case such as defamation, the test is on the balance of probabilities. So um, I think uh, that's the greatest difference. So worst case scenario, and I do say something about someone on social media and they sue me for defamation and I'm like, I'm going to fight it. I know that I'm right. I know that I'm right and I can prove it. What sort of things would I need to take to court to prove it? So say for my idiot example, what would be something that I would have to take to court if I wanted to successfully I suppose, prove that even though if someone says the statement is defamatory, but I'm saying that it's true, what are some of the things that people rely on in their defence of truth? Sure. Well, I guess like with any civil case, it's all about obtaining the hard evidence to support your position. And this generally involves a combination of tendering relevant and admissible documents and calling witnesses at the trial to give oral evidence to support the arguments that you want to make. And, of course, we're seeing that being played out at the moment in the Ben Robert Smith uh, case where the media defendants are calling witness after witness after witness to try and establish that what they have said or published about Mr Robert Smith is true. Now, proving someone is an idiot would not necessarily be an easy task because the term idiot is relatively subjective. Mm. <laughs> um, I suppose you could... I'm trying to think if there's something I can give you that's maybe a more straightforward <laughs> example, but... No, well, I, look, I, I suppose in, in, in the idiot case, you, you could provide evidence of things that that person has said or done in the past, which clearly demonstrates that they're a person of low intelligence. 
but it, it would certainly be an interesting task, that's for sure. <laughs> You're like, mm, this could be an intriguing case to do. Yeah. Obviously, people can create anonymous or fake profiles on social media. What happens if I see that someone has said something awful about me on social media and it's like some bot-like mix of letters and numbers and it's an anonymous account? Uh, and also the other side of that is if I did want to air a grievance about someone, am I protected by having an anonymous profile? Well, look, there are mechanisms um, within the law to uncover anonymous bloggers or, or, or trolls, as they're often referred to. Um, so just because you might make statements on social media using a pseudonym, you're not necessarily safe. And I've been involved in a number of cases where uh, court orders have been made against website operators or website owners ordering those companies to hand over any information they have that would identify anonymous bloggers or trolls. So you're not really safe just by adopting a pseudonym. The court does have powers under what's called preliminary discovery orders to force website operators to hand over any information they have. Now, of course, you know, if you're a, a, a nasty troll, then you're probably not going to be honest when you register your name and phone number and email address with the website, but um, you'd be surprised how many people do. Um, a defamation case is obviously we see the really high profile ones. They're typically media outlets who are being sued for defamation. Is it mostly a media company's game or are there a lot of defamation matters that are taken sort of between individuals? Look, that's a good question. I, I don't know the statistics, but I can say from my own experience that at least half of the cases that I've dealt with don't involve the media. It's typically businesses who feel that they've been attacked online or individuals who, for whatever reason, have felt really aggrieved by something that's been said about them. So I, I don't know the exact breakdown, but um, I, I wouldn't assume that it's the vast majority is media matters. I think there'd be a, a, a quite a balance in that regard. What would happen if I have been sued for defamation and then and and I lose I lose the case and the court finds that yes I did defame someone what typically would happen next I guess there's two aspects to that question one is a, a financial aspect and the other one is a, an emotional aspect so on the financial side we we have a cap of what we call general damages now general damages are awarded to vindicate a person's reputation and also to remedy the hurt that they've suffered now, in Victoria, New South Wales, there's a cap. It's about a half a million dollars. So that is reserved for the most serious allegations of defamation. On top of that award of general damages, a plaintiff can be awarded special damages. Now, special damages are not capped and they are designed to uh, put people back into a financial position that they would have been in but for the allegations. So in Geoffrey Rush's example, he was awarded about $2.8 million in damages, and the vast majority of that was for economic loss. In other words, he was able to um, argue that if it hadn't been for these allegations, he would have picked up a lot more work, and the court had to do its best to quantify the value of that work as an actor, and, and they came up with the figures that they did. Now, on top of that, of course, there is then your legal costs, so you know you have to pay your own lawyers to defend the case, 
And if you're unsuccessful, then you have to pay the other side's costs. So there can be very, very significant financial consequences. But the other unquantifiable cost of defamation claims is the emotional cost. So it's the time involved in having to deal with the matter. It's the fact that all of your dirty laundry will inevitably be exposed in court. And once you're in the court setting, the defamation laws themselves don't apply. So people can really say anything they wish in the proceedings and they cannot be sued for defamation. Oh, wow. So, so it's almost like a yeah. privilege of within inside the courtroom. Absolutely. It's called, it's called absolute privilege. That's, that's, the def- that's the technical defense. So I don't think any lawyer would rush to recommend uh, litigation. And, and it cuts both ways. I mean, plaintiffs can live to regret bringing a claim. Plaintiffs you know, might feel hot under the collar about something that's been said and they rush off to court and then they find that, you know, their friends and relatives are being subpoenaed and they're having to produce all sorts of documents. They're, there's things coming out about them that, you know, um, people have found out through private investigators and it can get very, very messy. And there's a lot of plaintiffs who, even if they're ultimately successful, would say to you, if I had my time again, I would not have commenced that proceeding. I want to ask you, I suppose, where can people go for advice on when they're on either side of the coin, either they feel they have been defamed or someone has said that they have defamed them. But it's interesting just hearing what you were talking about, the, the court proceedings, and, and obviously there's, there can be a lot of money up for grabs if people do successfully prove it. But in your experience, do you find, and, and bearing in mind what you were just talking about with that this can be a very traumatic process for the plaintiff, do you find in a lot of instances of defamation, you think this could have just been resolved if someone had said, look, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't said it, I take it back, and someone would actually just probably want the comment or whatever to be removed, a quick apology, and everyone would move on with their life? Absolutely. That is always the best approach, uh, whether you're acting for a plaintiff or a defendant. You, you need to try and find a way to resolve the issue before it gets anywhere near a court. And the parliament has gone some way to encourage that. In all of the defamation laws around Australia, we have a a concept of what's called a concerns notice. So before you are entitled to bring a proceeding in the court, you must first serve on the publisher a notice which sets out the allegations or the comments that you're concerned about. And you're really giving that person an opportunity to take some remedial steps, whether it's removing the publication, paying a small amount to compensate you, etc. And so that regime, I think, has led to a lot of cases resolving well before getting to court. The other important point to note is that um, providing an apology early on is not to be taken as admission of liability, and the legislation says that. So there really is a lot of encouragement from the parliament and from the courts to, you know, resolve defamation disputes before they get anywhere near the courtroom. If I see that something has been said about me online and I think it, it's spreading, I've noticed a, f- a few comments or a few posts and more and more people are saying it and I might be getting advice from friends saying, like, just forget about it, don't worry about it, it will go away, but it seems to be escalating. Where can I go for help? Well, it depends on the forum of the publication. Uh, a lot of social media pages now do have a, a reporting button or function that you can try and you know, self-report the 
the comments and, and hope that the website operator will remove it. But if that doesn't work, um, then you could try contacting the uh, person responsible directly if you feel that is, is possible. Um, if not, then you can contact the website operator. And we know from recent High Court uh, decision that the website operators who facilitate third-party publishers are themselves considered to be a publisher as a matter of law. So there is an incentive for the likes of Facebook and other websites who facilitate third-party comments to remove material once they're put on notice. But ultimately, if you are not getting anywhere through those direct channels, then the most sensible thing to do is to uh, contact a lawyer that practices in this area. And what should the process be if it's, if it's the other way around, that someone comes to me and says, you've defamed me, this comment that you made on Instagram is highly defamatory, I'm going to sue you. What do I do? Like, what do I do in a situation like that if someone's threatening to sue me? Well, look, I think the first thing to do is to remove the material that's being complained about. Again, that is not to be taken as an admission of liability or wrongdoing. Um, And if you can do that quickly, it will remediate any damage. So that's the first thing I would do. If if you then feel strongly about publishing that material, then you should go and get some advice from a a, a lawyer, defamation lawyer, to guide you in terms of whether the material is dangerous to put back on or not. And if warranted and you think that it might help to diffuse the situation then an apology um, is not a bad idea, provided that you know you're, you're doing it in such a way that you're not capitulating in terms of what you're saying, but um, you know you're offering a, a genuine expression of regret. Often that will diffuse the situation. If that doesn't work and you end up you know getting a concerns notice, then the sensible thing to do again is to seek some legal advice. Some community legal centres might be able to assist you, but um, you are better off. I think, seeing a specialist in the area. And is your overarching advice to people to be careful of what they post on social media? Look, I think so. I mean, it doesn't take long to read something a couple of times. I mean, people often are in a heated situation or they're a bit lazy about what they type out, you know, when they're um, putting something online. If you have any concerns whatsoever, sit on it for an hour or two, sit on it overnight, come back and look at it fresh, look at it from an objective perspective. What would the ordinary reasonable person think about this material? Just adopt a common sense, logical approach. And if you've got any concerns about it, then I'd probably err on the side of caution and not publish it. Or if you really want to publish it, then get some (laughs) advice before you do so. This is like the the modern times 2022 version of when they say write a la- out a letter and then tear it up and don't send it. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Just air your grievances, but don't share them publicly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and look, I have to say, I think the defamation laws do strike the right balance. We've talked about you know the different freedoms that we have, and uh, I think at the moment the um, parliament's got it pretty right. Well, Christian, thank you so much. You have provided me with a wealth of knowledge about the next time I want to criticise a lobster at a restaurant or call someone an idiot on Facebook. So thank you very much for providing such practical advice. My pleasure. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. 
I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales and with support from the Law Institute of Victoria. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Takato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. 